0: Women's Prison Maximum Security Wisconsin, 1990 Everyone's supposed to be asleep But there's one inmate in the laundry room Creeping around where she's not supposed to be Even if she wasn't sneaking around You'd definitely notice her Tall, blonde, like supermodel hot Her name's Bambi, like the deer Big eyes, long legs Now, Bambi's in prison for first-degree murder, for killing her husband's ex-wife. She's on year nine of a life sentence. But tonight, she's had enough, and she's getting out. Lucky for her, there's a window in the laundry room that's been left open, or propped open. Nobody knows for sure. And it's barely cracked enough to be noticeable. But Bambi slips right through the gap, hops down to the ground, and scampers across the lawn. You know, like a deer, but a super hot deer. Then she's thrashing through the trees in the dark, making it to the prison's fence, which is topped with barbed wire. She uses a belt to pull it out of the way, then leaps, practically pole vaulting to the other side. And of course, there's a handsome young guy waiting for her in a getaway car. The guy's nearly hyperventilating, but Bambi, She's a badass, ready to roll. They pop in some 70s yacht rock, and off they go. Our fugitive wastes no time, driving all night through Minnesota to reach the Canadian border, which is highly guarded. But don't worry, Bambi has a plan, all figured out. She has the dude pull over so she can decorate the car with pastel streamers and styrofoam wedding bells. Then she approaches the border officials in their crisp blue suits. Fanny grabs hold of her guy's hand, hoping they look like regular newlyweds. She tries to look happy and relaxed. When she gets to the front of the line, an agent leans down to the window to ask, what's your business in Canada? And she blurts out, we're on our honeymoon? He looks back and forth between them, the way the border guards do. And then he says, have a nice time. And he waves them into Ontario, free, onto their new life. Except, when a convicted murderer who looks like a model waltzes out of a Wisconsin state penitentiary, people pay attention. Bambi's story became the Bonnie and Clyde adventure you've probably never heard of. But way back then, everyone had an opinion. Because love her or hate her, Bambi always swore she was innocent. I won't pretend
1: to believe that I know why they did what they did. Um, All I know is I didn't kill Christine Schultz. And more than one person went to an awful lot of trouble to secure evidence against me.
0: Was she really framed? Or did she have everyone fooled? It's one of those classic cases that no one's ever solved. So we decided it's time to take a good hard look at the bizarre case of Laurentia Bambenek, also known as Bambi. This is Run Bambi Run, an Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. Episode 1.
1: It's a story that sounds almost like a pulp novel. A sexy, provocative blonde convicted of murdering her husband's ex-wife.
0: I'm Vanessa, Vanessa Gregoriotis. I'm a writer for some of the country's top magazines, from the New York Times Magazine to Elle. My stories are usually about glamour, celebrity, and scandal. Stories about larger-than-life people the whole country can't help but watch and argue about. I'm just fascinated by these people, the ones involved in the different scandals, and especially our reaction to them. It's like we take all of our deepest hell beliefs and we project them onto these people we don't even know. Beliefs about sexuality, about feminism, about policing and criminal justice. All these complicated issues that we still can't agree on, even 40 years after Bambi made headlines. That's the stuff we're really thinking about when we get obsessed with people like Bambi, and the murder she went to jail for. So let me give you the big picture. Here's the official version of the events that would become so important to her story. One night in Milwaukee in 1981, Bambi breaks into the home of a woman named Christine Schultz. As you've heard, she's Bambi's husband's ex-wife. Stay with me here. There's some kind of struggle, and Christine is partially tied up, begging for her life. Then, at some point, Bambi shoots her in the back and leaves her to die face down in her own bed. All this while Christine's two little boys are cowering, horrified, in the next room. It's awful stuff.
2: She said, she's dead. And I said, oh my God, what happened? Car accident? She said, no, she was murdered. It just seemed impossible.
0: The main theory was that Bambi was jealous and pissed off that her husband was paying so much in alimony to his ex-wife. Or maybe... Bambi was looking for drugs that were stashed at the house. It was a robbery gone wrong, and she just happened to kill Christine by mistake. There were many, many theories. And right away, 1980s newsrooms started pumping them out. They were well aware that gorgeous women and grisly murderers are both good for business. Especially when the woman has a dime store nickname, tailor-made for the tabloids. Bambi.
1: This is a case of cold-blooded murder. The most glamorous murder case of the decade. She was profiled in everything from Vanity Fair to People magazine. A woman said to be a kind of sorceress who can get men to
0: help her do anything she wants.
2: This story has all the elements of a good movie and people are willing to watch.
0: It was a media storm with so much hype and noise and smoke that a lot of the nuance got lost. Like, it didn't matter that there was an eyewitness who said Bambi didn't do it. It didn't matter that the crime scene was riddled with fuck-ups. What mattered was Bambi was a woman, a woman who had pissed off some very powerful men. They controlled the narrative about the murder and who she really was. She never stood a chance. So at just 23 years old, just a kid really, she was sentenced to life in prison. That could have been the end of her story. Just another convict, this time a white woman, sitting in jail, claiming to be innocent. The newspapers all moved on to the next scandal. Until, as you just heard, she escaped. And then, all of a sudden, her story became even more provocative and confusing. She wasn't a terrifying femme fatale anymore, she was an American folk hero.
2: Lori Bembenek's legend grew even larger after she scaled this seven foot prison fence. It's been nearly escaped. 24
1: hours since Lorencia Bembenek slipped through the hands of the law into freedom. Officers
2: searched through the night in heavy brush, but it was obvious that Bembenek was long gone. Slipped into the night from a laundry room in the basement of her. This prison. blonde on the run in a tank top and cutoffs has been boosting circulation at both daily papers. All of Milwaukee is talking or singing about Bambi. Bambi.
0: There were bumper stickers everywhere saying, run, Bambi, run. It wasn't just Milwaukee. She was on the national news. There were t-shirts and coffee mugs. Hell, someone wrote a song about her.
2: Run, Bambi, run. The subject is a convicted murderer in hiding with no apparent lack of admirers willing to help her hide. If I had a ways and means of helping her to stay out, I certainly would. She has not had a fair trial. I believe that she's innocent. She just didn't do it. Lorencia Bambenek is a cold, calculating murderer, someone who carefully plans her every move, her every conversation.
0: Like I said, lots of opinions. Bambi was a complicated woman, maybe too complicated for her moment.
1: They want it both ways. Like, they want me to be savvy and manipulative and charismatic and this Fengali stuff. But they also want people to believe that I would be stupid enough to commit a murder with my husband's gun.
0: Like, you know, either I'm really stupid or I'm not. She was haunted by this public image she barely recognized as herself. A lot of famous people say this, right? The mask you hide behind can actually become a part of you. As I said, Bambi's real name was Laurencia Bembenek. To her friends and family, she was Lori. And she died far too young in 2010, in a very peculiar way, which is sad for a lot of reasons. One being, I wish I could have met her. It seems like she was a pretty interesting person. And of course, I also have a million questions I'd like to ask her. I want to know the real story. But even though I can't speak with Lori Bembenek or Christine Schultz, the victim, or half the people involved in the story who died with their secrets, I was lucky enough to find the next best thing. Another smart, opinionated woman who knew Lori as well as anyone. Chris Radish, Lori's biographer and her friend. So I went to see her. I rented a car and pulled up to Chris's house on a quiet cul-de-sac. She has a welcome mat that you may or may not have seen before. It says, must have wine to enter. I didn't have any, but I took my chances. Hi! <laughs> Hi. Hi! Oh my God, how are you doing? I'm all right. Yeah, come in. Chris Radish will be our guide through the series. We had spoken on the phone, but never met before in person. Right away, she's a character. She's got acres of long, white, blonde, curly hair, sort of like Mariah Carey in a Christmas video. And on her wrists, she's got these silver bracelets, like stacked the whole way up. She believes they give women good energy. This house is huge.
1: Oh, I know, it's ridiculous. So here's where the magic happens. This is where I create...
0: Chris Radish has written 16 books, and a lot of them have names like Dancing Naked at the Edge of Dawn and The Year of Unnecessary Lies. It's the kind of stuff that Barnes & Noble would file under chick lit. But Chris doesn't call it that.
1: That's my thing. I always say my genre is called broads who have been there. <laughs> uh, female friendship, to me, it's like the lining of my soul. One of my books is called Hearts on a String," and. I remember writing that and thinking about how really there is this invisible string that connects all women. I know that sounds a little trite, but that's really how I feel
0: about This it. invisible string that connects women. Chris would hold that string especially tightly with Laurentia Bembenek. They met in the late 1980s when Chris Radish was a journalist living in Wisconsin, Walk, Wisconsin.
1: I was married then to a man, and I had uh, come off this career that I just absolutely loved as a working journalist, I gave that up to to be a a full-time mom and a part-time writer. It was very hard. I felt like I was grieving. And I was pregnant with my second child. And I would have two little kids to take care of, which, of course, ended up to be the greatest joy of my life. But I wanted to write another magazine story before I gave birth.
0: And so she started looking around for that story— It took a while.
1: I was probably five months pregnant. I can't remember. It's all a horrible blur of fat tissue around my middle. I was doing some work for Wisconsin Women Magazine at the time. So I asked the editor, I said, is there an assignment for me? And she said, I've got three options for you, Chris. Here you go. And I was like all excited, you know, what could it be? So the first one, she's mentioned, was to go to Racine County. It's some bar out in the middle of nowhere where this woman with very large breasts, I think her name was Tarzana, where she was famous for crushing beer cans in between her breasts. I said, what's the second choice? She goes, well, you've always mentioned how you wanted to do—you know, spend 48 hours with someone who's a working prostitute, I'm like, oh, okay. I'm thinking of this, how you know, how long it would take me to find somebody, and I was just getting bigger by the minute with the baby. And then the last one she offered me was to do a story about this woman who had been imprisoned, whose name was Lorencia Bembenik. And I was like, tell me about her. So she just gave a little background. She's really beautiful. She was convicted of killing her husband's ex-wife. People think she's innocent. Some people think she's guilty. So I said, okay. I'll take that assignment, give the other two to somebody else.
0: That assignment would open the door to the biggest, most complicated investigation of Chris Radish's life. Three decades later, her garage is still packed with evidence of it.
1: So out here is where I keep some of my writing files in this cold garage Right next to the kingdom of crap, um, as we like to call it. So
0: There are these gray plastic boxes, like the kind you buy at Target, and they're stacked really neatly in the garage up to the ceiling. She pulls one down from the top of the heap.
1: So here is my Vimbenic (laughs) box. This is, I have not looked at this in a long time. Let's see what, oh my lord, what do we have here? Stories about the murder, book proposal... The original testimony from the courtroom. I feel like I'm traveling back in time here. Yeah. Here's some letters from Lori. Mailroom, Taichita Correctional Institute. Just
0: tons of letters. Um, Most of the box was letters. So many letters. So much of this relationship between the journalist and the woman in jail, it happened through the mail. This must be the first letter.
1: It's a beautiful little card. Hi, Ms. Radish. I got your letter, and I wanted you to know that I appreciate your interest, but the timing is unfortunate. The general consensus is that I'll have to wait a while before agreeing to an interview. I hope that's okay with you. Sincerely, Lori.
0: It's formal. It's polite. But that's just because it's their first exchange. Pretty soon, Lori was showing more of herself to Chris, complaining to her about the jail, describing it like it's just a really bad hotel. My cell is 14 by six. It has a sink, desk, chair, and a hook on the wall for clothes. We laugh at the three institutional colors that the walls are painted. You've got a choice of kitty litter beige, post-mortem taupe, or pond scum green. <laughs> In October, 1989, you start to see a little bit of what she was like before she went to prison, what she cared about. And Lori's already got a nickname for Chris. Hi, Lois Lane. And then there's a smiley face. I would love to go to that pro-choice workshop. There are so many conferences and workshops that I miss.
1: Just, you know, some of the stuff, it was very poignant. I I saved almost every letter. Here's another uh, little thing she sent you.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Some of her notes just feel like the text you get from that one friend who's constantly bombarding the group chat.
1: Oh, my Lord in heaven. It looks like she may have drawn this. What is that? This is, uh, <laughs> I, I remember when she sent me this. It's a picture of like a man who's naked from the waist up, draped in bullets, looking like he wants to eat somebody for breakfast. And on the top she wrote, do not date him. <laughs> <laughs> this one has some beautiful artwork on the back. <laughs> <Here's>, <laughs> this is some stuff from the manuscript. She draws little faces on the pa- pieces of paper. and Yeah. It's definitely the essence of her. She started a newspaper in prison when she was there called Inmate Output. We got phones installed
0: because of a complaint she filed. She was a a prison activist is what she was. Lori's taking college classes. She's writing poems for a feminist zine. It's like if she wasn't in jail, she'd be blogging for Jezebel, which makes sense. I mean, she did seem to be a bit ahead of her time. To find out how she got that way, I had to go back further, past Chris Radish, way back to Lori's childhood. I wanted to hear what she was like growing up on the south side of Milwaukee, in a Polish neighborhood made up of tidy houses, churches, and a bar on every corner. As someone said to me, Milwaukee's the type of town where the waiter wears a tuxedo and the CEO wears a t-shirt. It's folksy and friendly, not fancy. So I tracked down this one friend that comes up a lot in Lori's letters, her best friend. Joanne from grade school.
2: Being a very Catholic neighborhood, there was a lot of large families.
0: The cops that walked our beat called it incubator roll. Not incubator-like startups. This was the 60s. Incubators like the families had so many babies, the houses were big incubators. All of them, except for Lori's. Her sisters were older, and her house, unlike the houses of her friends, was weirdly quiet.
2: Their living room furniture had plastic on it. I know these are a joke, but her parents really did have plastic on their furniture. Our furniture was really beat up. We had five kids jumping on it, you know. Um, One of the first times I was there and I touched the furniture and Lori goes, come out of there. She goes, you can't walk on that
0: carpet. (laughs) While her friends had hand-me-downs, Lori had nice clothes. Her mom made sure of that. She liked to keep things just so and wore neat curls and an apron. Kind of like Lucille Ball, except she wasn't warm or jovial.
2: She was very, she, what I call, she's got her shorts on a little too tight. She was not loose in any way. I remember making her making us sandwiches and bringing them to us at the kitchen table for lunch. She would talk to you in short sentences. Her muscles
0: were tight when she stood there. Lori inherited that intensity. She got straight A's and she practiced her flute for hours at night. But overall, she seemed to have more in common with her dad.
2: He was... Very blue-collar, very reserved, very quiet. He'd be working on his projects in the garage or in the basement.
0: He'd been a cop when he was younger. But while Lori was growing up, he worked in construction.
1: Lori was extremely close with her dad, idolized him. And I also believe that she was the son he never had. You know, it's interesting because of that pre-war generation that he is from, he really encouraged Lori that she could do and be anything she wanted to be. Not a
0: bad childhood, but then puberty hit and the world started reacting to Lori and she started reacting right back. This was Milwaukee, but even in Milwaukee in the early 70s, women were finding a new kind of power and Lori more than most. There's this one story she tells in her biography. Yeah, she wrote one herself too. And this story feels really important to understanding Lori. It's about a priest who ran a gym class at her school. Here, let me just read it to you. One afternoon when I was 12, I was sitting in the basement wearing pants with my feet up on a bench against the wall. The priest looked over and yelled, Bembenek, get your feet off the wall. Well, I was a smart ass and I never did like authority. I lifted my feet in the air, but I didn't move them. Technically, they weren't on the wall anymore. The priest turned around and lost his temper altogether. And in front of all these little kids, he hollered, "'God damn it, Bembenek. "'I told you to get your fucking feet off the wall. "'You look like a slut.' "'I looked at him. "'I didn't even know what a slut was. "'I knew, however, that whatever a slut was, "'it was really bad, and I wasn't that. "'He started coming after me, "'and I heard my girlfriends yelling, "'Run, Lori!' "'There was a tunnel between the church "'and the school building, "'and I took off on my spindly legs, "'and I ran through that tunnel.' I went and told my mom what happened, but the priest was never punished. I don't want to say anything against my parents because I love them, but they were brought up not to make waves, to leave things alone and clean it up, not to make things worse. If that had been my kid, I would have run right to the Milwaukee Journal and to the first lawyer I could find, and I would have taken that creep to court so fast. That anger Lori Bembenick felt towards the priest that she couldn't quite find a name for, she would take it into her teenage years. Her whole life, in fact, she hated the idea of standing down to a bully. She had a thing about authority. And how do kids rebel when they're from quiet neighborhoods in the Midwest? They party. And in Milwaukee, especially, they drink.
2: You would sip out of your parents' cup when you were young. It wasn't just accepted, into your home. It was expected. Milwaukee is the beer city.
0: Lori's grade school friend, Joanne, has this memory that encapsulates the 70s rebel teen that Lori was becoming. It's at a Pink Floyd show, of course.
2: Her and I went to a Pink Floyd
0: concert and we were sitting on the pitcher's mound
2: and it was a hot, hot, hot summer day. And, uh, you know, of course, a lot of beer and alcohol involved and we were smoking pot and they had a big pig
0: and it went from one end of the stadium to the other. Pink Floyd sang about pigs, the people who were at the top of the social order. They sometimes had a big blimp of a pig floating around. And as it came back down, it was right on top of us and
2: it exploded because it was helium. And I remember looking at her and going, oh my God, did that just happen? And we were really drunk and stoned. <laughs>
0: Now, it may be jarring to hear someone who sounds like your grandmother talking about the doobitch. But, you know, this was the 70s. It was a different time. Still, Lori wasn't satisfied with the status quo. After graduating high school, she wanted to test herself. She wanted to make big, bold choices. But it was a depressed time in America, economically speaking.
2: She wanted to go to college. And her parents wouldn't fund her because her sister went to school for one year and I guess partied out so they were not going to give Lori the opportunity she wanted to go somewhere but she didn't have any way to get there there wasn't jobs
0: to be had the economics was horrid so what was Lori supposed to do what was her skill set did I mention that Lori was good looking I think I did but let me get more specific for a second Maybe you're thinking she looks like a bosomy Hugh Hefner girlfriend, but she's more Teutonic goddess. Five foot 10, high cheekbones, wide set eyes, big billowing wreath of hair the color of gold. Like one of those illustrations of a warrior princess that you see in a mythology book with a bag full of arrows slung across her back. And in terms of affect, even though she was warm to her friends and in her letters, To strangers, Lori often acted totally aloof, like untouchable, a forest goddess who Zeus is trying to bang, but can't. So people were always telling her she should be a model, and she took them up on it. Now, I haven't seen a lot of her modeling shots, but there's this one that became kind of notorious. Imagine this. It's not the cover of Vogue. It's a Schlitz Brewing Company calendar, and she's Miss March. The whole thing is shot in this old-school film noir style, like black and white. She's got this skimpy cocktail dress on and is lying belly down on a couch with her head propped up on her elbows. There's a string of pearls dangling above her cleavage. It's just the whole thing is like ersatz cheesy Greta Garbo. So maybe Lori could have made a living modeling. It would have made sense. The boundary-pushing 70s gal decides to go for a life of glamour. But she grew bored with all that. She went in the opposite direction and made a truly bizarre career choice. When someone's life becomes a catastrophe on such a national scale, it's usually hard to pinpoint one decision that made it all happen. But with Lori Bembenek, I think I can and it happened right about here. In 1980, Lori Bembenek, a square peg in whatever round holes exist in this world, decided that she would take on a whole new career as a police officer. At age 21, she'd strut into the Milwaukee Police Department dressed in jeans and a t-shirt. According to her, a cop there actually asked her, A pretty little thing like you wants to be a big, bad policeman? She did. Here's Chris Radish.
1: Everybody wants to be wanted and needed. She liked being around men. She was attracted to men. And I think there was a part of her that did feel that I can do this. Somebody else might not be able to do it, and I'm going to show them that I can do this and survive and, you know, play at their own game. And then we all know what happened.
0: Yeah, she signs up for the police force at age 21, and she's serving a life sentence for murder by age 23. What the hell? How does that happen? Well, here's a hint. This young woman who didn't care for bullies would unwittingly uncover the Milwaukee Police Department's worst secret. And that standoff would set off a sequence of events that we'll explain over the next seven episodes. As Lori Bimbenek becomes a whistleblower, a victim... A martyr. And look, as far as the official record is concerned, she's a murderer, too. The fact is, we don't know for sure who killed Christine Schultz. But there's no shortage of people who think they do, although they don't always have the same theory. So we've spent months digging up the whole mess, looking at the pieces. And what we've realized is it's about a lot more than just Christine Schultz's murder. It's about what your options were as an American woman in the 70s and 80s. What kind of power you had and didn't have. It's about how the police called the shots in Milwaukee and how they abused that authority. It's about what justice looks like in practice. But first, let me give Chris Radish the last word, because she never wants you to forget that there's a real person here, even if she's not with us anymore it's sad and
1: it's also re- extremely sad for me to revisit this mm-hmm. you know it's still it's still a tragedy when I look at the last video of her I I, I can't look at it I, I just break down sobbing think about the her life and not just her life but obviously christine Schultz's the Schultz family her parents just this ricochet of loss it's important to keep these stories alive and to hope that someday the real story will come out because I I believe the killer is still
0: out there. Coming up on Run Bambi Run, all this and much more. All the
2: obsession was with the convicted killer. I mean, the evidence I think was there that she did it. This investigation looks really, really.
1: With my dying breath, I'm going to protest my innocence.
2: If you're innocent, you don't run. Whoa. A secret investigation into her prosecution revealed serious mistakes in the case. Mentioning her was like the black eye on the department later to be replaced by mentioning Jeffrey Dahmer. She said, if the DA told me I had a drop on my knees and give him a blow job in the courtroom, I would have done it.
0: Holy moly, what have I got myself into?
2: <laughs> they made such a big deal out of her having worked as a Playboy bunny. That beauty was a gift as well as a target. That was
1: part of her downfall. All these other officers have selective, convenient memory loss. We've learned that some important blood
2: samples from the Christine Schultz murder case still exist. This is just incredible. That gun didn't cause... The murder. Whatever she did know, she would take to her grave. This case is not important to me. It's important to everyone.
0: Run Bambi Run is an Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. It was created and executive produced by Mark McAdam and me, Vanessa Gregoriadis. Our producers are Sam Leeds and Elizabeth Van Brocklin. Ashley-Ann Krigbaum is our managing producer. Our researcher is Alex Yablon, and our archivist is Megan Shuve. We had help from Sierra Franco and Emily Files. Campside Media's executive producers are Josh Dean, Adam Hoff, Matt Scher, and myself. Thank you to Campside's operations team. Amanda Brown, Doug Slaywin, Aaliyah Papes, and Allison Haney. And special thanks to Shoshi Shmulovits, Shruthi Pinamanini, Rachel Jones, PJ Vogt, and executive producer Kyle Long. And finally, thanks so much to Chris Radish, who wrote the book Run, Bambi, Run. If you're enjoying this show, please rate and review it on the Apple Podcast app. Thanks so much for listening.